I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God through the lens of apostolic tradition. And today, we are going to look at the Scripture texts that deal with the arrests and trials and media coverage that have accompanied the clergy sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, and we'll try to understand that better by examining our Lord's own experiences at His trials before the authorities of His day. Now, if you have any comments or questions related to today's topic, we invite you to be part of the show. You can certainly email us by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. Also, you can follow and participate with the show on YouTube or, like the nice people who are here today, you can join us in our studio audience. Now, we're continuing to go through my book called Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get the book still at EWTN's Religious Catalog, just go to EWTNRC.com. It is item 81098, 81098. And today we'll start with chapter 5, which is on page 97 in that book, if you're already following along with us. Now, first of all, as an introductory uh, background to this today's discussion and discussions over the next few weeks. We have to remember that the clergy sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church became very much a hot topic. It was uh, all over the news and today it pops up again every so often. Uh, it was especially uh, uh, in the news when it started in the late 80s, uh, the first known case was made public in the late 80s from Louisiana, and then many others, and it just became an avalanche of cases that were brought. And this is something, you know, that was especially talking about the scandalous side. They. Quite frankly, they rarely covered those bishops who were vigorously trying to deal with the issue. Uh, many situations when bishops came into the situation of uh, an abuse case, they did try to take it on. Um, and they were doing what was expected of them. But there was more emphasis on those bishops who I think usually failed to understand the nature of the crisis. They oftentimes saw this simply as a moral failure, which of course it is. They were correct on that. But uh, they didn't always understand some of the legal ramifications of it and the uh, other aspects of the damage done to victims. That was sometimes the case. And then there were other bishops who simply neglected to address the complaints 
Uh, they they certainly failed to deal with the situations. They sometimes failed to fully investigate the abuses. And sometimes they themselves, because of that neglect, were indicted and put on trial, you know, um, along with the actual perpetrators of the uh, sexual crimes. Um, and then sometimes, you know, uh, it, big news, I've known of cases where bishops were very aggressively take, trying to, to deal with situations and nothing they did was ever enough. And they were also raked over the coals. I know, I personally know those kind of situations because there were occasions when some of the DAs were simply trying to make a political name for themselves or augment political ambitions. That was sometimes the case, not the majority by any means, but it happened. So the variety of situations that had taken place and no matter what had happened the, uh, w with the, the bishops, the issue remained a source of horrendous shock and scandal within the church. It, I, was, I was certainly among uh, Catholics who was shocked by this. I couldn't imagine that this would happen. Uh, that a priest would abuse his position. And then we saw that it was something that uh, affected about 3% of the Catholic priests in the country. They had engaged in this kind of activity. And it's good to note, by the way, 85% of that 3% did this kind of abuse once. They realized too late they had gone way over the moral line. There should never have been a single case. That's for sure. Uh, but, you know, 85% of them said, oh, this, what am I doing? Um, and they stopped. But, and, of course, they were still culpable for the, uh, even the one event. And then 15% of that 3% were repeat offenders, sometimes lots, lots of times. So all of this, all, all of this caused tremendous scandal because we expected, all of us expect more of the clergy than this. And if someone's preaching the gospel of Christ, how is it that they would contradict the gospel and do harm to the least of Christ's brothers and sisters? How is it that they would abuse those that... Our Lord said it'd be better to have a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause scandal to one of these, my little ones. That, that was the situation that we were dealing with and some aspects of the gospel were missed. There's still another aspect of all this that uh, the prosecution of the abusers and the prosecution of those who neglected to prevent the abuse um, required in many cases the victims of abuse to appear in court. That meant for many of them they had to relive this horrible situation. This is 
one of the most grievous parts of any victim's life. When they have to go to court, whether it's in child abuse or other sexual crimes like rape or murder cases, you know, I had witnessed a murder myself and having to go back to court, you know, certainly forced, I had to testify and go back over what had happened. You know, and that's a miserable experience for anybody involved. And this is something that was part of the pain of the situation. And not only the victims, but their families had to suffer through this too. This was a painful experience. It tore some of the families apart. They, sometimes the parents got divorced. They, you know, oftentimes, sadly, when it was the perpetrator's responsibility and fault, a lot of parents blamed themselves and each other uh, horribly. They were, you know, they knew that they should protect their child and, you know, they, they felt like they failed. Uh, understand it, it wasn't logical, but in these very emotional situations, logical analysis oftentimes get pushed back and the emotion of the moment takes over and causes great pain. And uh, then there are, there's another group that we can't neglect. And I've also known some of these people, those clergy who were falsely accused. That, that happened as well. Some priests and some bishops have been falsely accused of abuse or neglect. And I've, I've, you know, I've been friends with some of the folks who've gone through that. And it's often devastating. A lot of times, as a matter of fact, in these days, they would get removed from priestly ministry. And these were men who loved being priests. They loved serving the people and they had not done something wrong. But either mistaken identity and other situations, um, you know, where uh, it, it, all kinds of things and sometimes more obnoxious, uh, you know, trying to get uh, money that sometimes happened. You know, and some, and some of the false accusers later admitted that. And even when, and especially one of my friends who was falsely accused uh, and was totally exonerated, there were witnesses all around. And, you know, that it ever should have come up was, was amazing and shocking because there were, there were quite a few dozen witnesses. And, you know, that, that's not where sexual abuse usually goes on. But even still, after he was exonerated completely, he was not able to come back to the ministry. Um, and, it, you know, he went to his death, you know, grieved that uh, something that he had loved so much and had done so much good over years, you know, was gone from him. This is another kind of situation uh, as they get pushed aside. And we also have to pay attention to another element, 
And that's the role of the police in the arrests and the judges, the lawyers, the media, and how the media cover all this. Um, that adds to it. So here's one of the things I plan to do throughout this chapter five is examine the trials of our Lord Jesus Christ. He went through a number of trials. Uh, there, uh, you had uh, the four, one in the house of Annas, the retired high priest, second in the house of Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Annas and was high priest when Christ was there. And thirdly, he was in Herod's palace. And the fourth trial was in Pilate's praetorium. So there are four different trials. And what we want to do is enter into these events, use our own imagination and, our, and a better understanding of the sacred scripture to understand some of the experiences of the victims. Again, the, the primacy of attention that we need to pay is on the victims. What they suffered is the most important component of all this. Secondly, on their families and how this affected them. Thirdly, on the, the priests who were falsely accused. And uh, fourthly, on the effects that this scandal has had on the whole church, whether lay or clergy. All of these different folks have to, you know, find themselves in these trials of Jesus, that throughout this ongoing section, I began with the last chapter, but I also want to see this in the next two chapters, five and six, that we need to understand any of our suffering and pain in the light of Christ's passion, his suffering and death, his trials in this case, that we can see our own painful situations in light of what he went through, not just to have an example, but rather to see that in addition to being an example to us, we also can unite our suffering with his. We can join what we have with his suffering. And we'll, we'll talk about this, especially at the Holy Eucharist, at Mass, at the offertory, when the gifts are offered up, we can bring our pain at the scandal and the trials and everything else. We bring that and join it to that of Jesus Christ. And by uniting our suffering with him, we can see that what we go through and what we experience in suffering becomes part of the salvation of the world. Not because we suffered. That's not the key. It's because whatever we as members of the body of Jesus Christ. Remember, that's what the church primarily is. It is the mystical 
body of Jesus Christ. We are members of Christ. And whatever we suffer and unite with him and offer to him, he consecrates. See, that's why the offertory is always going to be the place where we offer up our human suffering like the bread and the wine. And remember, the bread was crushed to become bread and then baked. The wine was crushed grapes and then fermented. And this is life. So much of life is being crushed and baked and fermented. And we give that to him so that at the consecration, he can sanctify what we go through and unite it with his cross. In that way, we get to live out the teaching of St. Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I make up for what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ by my sufferings for the sake of his body, the church. So that as we either go into the temptation of resentment and anger and turn away from Christ and his church, or we say, I take the, the temptation that the anger is totally understandable and legitimate. The resentment, which is a misuse of the anger towards revenge or something like that, that has no place. But the anger, yes. There's legitimate anger that can be offered up with Christ and united with his passion. And with that, we will hope that he brings good out of whatever we offer him. We may not always see exactly how it is or understand how he's going to use it, but he will. And this is part of these next couple chapters to see these realities of suffering in light of what we can do to join ourselves to Jesus in his passion. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and continue on with the, the trial, so please stay with us. Welcome back. What I'd like to do at this point is give a little bit of historical background to understanding what is going on in the trials. Who is who, you know, in these trials? And what, why are they there and what's their role, okay? So let's take a look at that. First of all, the soldiers and the crowd that arrested Jesus in Gethsemane, which we covered last week, those folks brought our Lord Jesus to the house of 
Annas. Uh, uh, in, uh, then after they brought him to the high priest Annas, they brought him to the house of Caiaphas. Uh, and they wanted to try him and condemn Jesus to death. That was the issue here. Now there are a couple ironies here. Uh, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest, are going to be judging Jesus Christ, the high priest of the new and everlasting covenant. Christ, by his suffering on the cross, is going to become a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I won't go into all that now. This is some, that's a whole other discussion. But it is worth noting that, that Annas and Caiaphas are priests from the order of Aaron, the high priest appointed by God uh, you know, back in the time of Moses. And the high priests were supposed to descend from him. And Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is predicted that that high priesthood is, and he's not only a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but in Psalm 110 verse 4, it says that you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever that Christ will have an eternal priesthood. And he's going to be judged by these priests whose priesthood is only temporary, as we'll describe in a minute. Secondly, he is the judge of all humanity. Notice how we say in the Creed every Sunday and also in the Apostles' Creed every time we pray the Rosary that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. It is that judge of the living and the dead, the judge of all humanity, who is going to be put on trial. And this is a very important point for us to understand. So that's uh, part of the irony of this. And as a result of these two high priests in the line of Aaron condemning Jesus, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, to death, Jesus will be lifted up on the cross and he will be lifted on the cross as the Lamb of God and as the eternal high priest. Remember what John the Baptist had said back in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is such an important identification of Jesus Christ by St. John. We have incorporated that line into the Roman Rite liturgy. Every Mass, we, we pray to Jesus, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. We need to remember that the, the priests had 
you know, Caiaphas and uh, Annas condemned Jesus to death. And that's what made him the Lamb of God lifted up on the tree. But at the same time that he is the Lamb of God, and we'll see later in chapter 6, that he dies at 3 p.m. precisely as the last of the Passover lambs is being sacrificed. They finished the sacrificing of the Passover lambs at 3, so people could go prepare them for uh, their meal. And Jesus died at 3, but as the Lamb of God on the west side of the city where the east side is where the lambs were being slain. And he is the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who offers himself. Most lambs cannot offer themselves. They, they would never consider such a thing. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, offers himself as an infinite sacrifice. This is going to be very, very important. A further irony that's going on here is that the very attempt by Annas and Caiaphas to maintain their position in Jerusalem society is what is going to lead to their failure at that. That, you know, the last of the high priests will give the last sacrifice 40 years after the death of Jesus. And then they won't be able to offer another sacrifice even until this very day. While the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, continues to this day, every day, practically at every single moment as Mass is celebrated someplace in the world constantly. We now surround the world with the offering of the Mass of Christ and surround all of our time with it. This is uh, a very important uh, part of understanding what's happening here from our perspective as Christians. In terms of some of the background, uh, let's just give a little, little history here. In 6 AD, Herod, remember, Herod the Great had died in 4 B.C. And his sons divided up his kingdom into three parts. And there was a fourth part that the Romans ruled. So with uh, you know, the son who ruled Judah was completely incompetent, also named Herod. And he was deposed by the emperor Caesar Augustus in 6 AD. He came to Rome, uh, was put on trial, was deposed, and a Roman governor was placed over Judea. He's the governor of Syria. You see his name, by the way, mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Uh, and that, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, beginning there. His name was Quirinius. Quirinius recognized that there was a problem with the high priest, Joazar, so he deposed Joazar. Now, this is important because, in fact, 
the last descendant of Aaron, you know, direct descendant of Aaron, to be high priest was deposed in 175 B.C. His brother tried to take over from his, uh, Onias III was the name of the high priest. His brother took, deposed him. Then some non-priest deposed him and made himself priest with the help of the Greeks. And the Greeks were appointing priests until the Maccabees came. And then there were the descendants of the Maccabees who were priests, but they were not in the same line of direct connection to Aaron. And so um, they were the priests for a number of years. Herod deposed them. And here in 6 AD, Quirinius deposed Joazar and put in his place Annas. And Annas became the high priest for 10 years. When he stepped down, his son became the high priest. Um, and uh, uh, that was, the first one was Eliezer. Eleazar was the priest from 16 to 17 AD. Then Jonathan, who succeeded Caiaphas from 36 to 37 AD. I know this, this is skipping around, but I'm just giving you the different names because um, we'll, we'll see why in a minute. Uh, another son, Theophilus, from 37 to 41. Matthias from 42 to 43, and Annas II from 61 to 62. Now, in that time between 17 AD and 36 AD, Joseph Caiaphas was the high priest. He was the son-in-law of Annas. So Annas had a big impact with having a, a number of his sons and his son-in-law rule after him as high priest. And the high priest was very much the, um, uh, you know, the, the leader of the people. And he ruled from 18 to 36. And he was high priest throughout the whole time that uh, Pontius Pilate was procurator. Pilate became procurator, I believe, in 26. AD. Also, uh, Annas uh, was the grandfather of Matthias, who was the son of his son Theophilus, and he was the high priest from 65 to 68. Uh, during his time as high priest, the Jewish revolt against Rome started in 66 AD. So these are some of the uh, influence that Annas had. You can see why they brought Jesus to Annas in order to put him on trial. Annas, his sons and grandson and his son-in-law ruled over the priesthood and the Jewish leader of the people of Judah um, for 45 years. That is a tremendous amount of political and religious influence. So in this sense of being the grand patriarch of so many leaders within Judah, uh, Judea, um, 
that we have uh, Jesus come to Annas, the, the high priest. And he, he will go on, of course, to be tried by the son-in-law Caiaphas and then by the procurator uh, Pontius Pilate. If you should ever be interested in learning more, where, where do you get these dates and things as such? Because it's not in the New Testament. But we do have a very, very important Jewish historian named Josephus, Josephus. And I would urge you to read uh, his, uh, he has a, a couple of books relevant to the material we're covering. Uh, one is called The Jewish Antiquities. Um, the first part uh, may not, it's very long, so you may not want to get into all that. You can just skip over to the era of the time of Christ. He was born in 36 AD. So he was fairly close to the events, and he was actually a Jewish general in the war against the Romans. So he knew a lot of the situation, and then he switched sides, basically, and worked with the Romans and wrote down this history of what was going on in order to show that bad leadership in Judea was the reason for the suffering. It wasn't something about, um, you know, the, the uh, Jewish people being so bad. It was rather that they had bad leadership and they followed that leadership. And as a result, uh, the Romans were, just had to do what they had to do. Um, that's the way he portrays it. So he, he gives a lot of facts, and he, he's got bias. He tries to make himself look good, too. Uh, but given that, uh, he uh, still gives tremendous, tremendous historical background that fills in a lot of things we don't know from Old or New Testament. And he is well worth getting a hold of. You can get paperback versions of it, and you can get it online and read it online or even in audiobooks. There are audio versions of Josephus uh, as well, and I re certainly recommend that you take a look at that to understand this background. All right, next time we will start with that trial at the house of Annas. So we'll take a look at that next week. Let's take a look at some of your emails, okay? First one is from Hector. Um, this, this is a very important email. Uh, Father Pacwa, you talk about the church's problems as if they existed in the far past. Allow me to tell you a little about the recent history of my parish. Father A pled guilty to child abuse. His successor, Father B, passed away shortly before his trial was to begin. His successor, Father C, was suddenly called away on sabbatical and never returned. He was having an affair with a parishioner. He now has another parish. Next came Father D, a very gentle, modest man who transferred to a parish in his home state to get away from our bishop. Father E, a young priest, followed him but finally turned in his collar along with our priest in residence over disputes with our bishop. My brother-in-law was a third-degree knight and attended many confirmations. He never saw a bishop preside at one. We now have a new past and are actually growing. Please wish us luck. Hector. Yeah, Hector, uh, let me 
uh, you, you bring up an important issue. Um, when I talk about these, uh, the, the child sexual, sexual abuse cases as being primarily in the past, uh, I mean just that. Um, that this is something that has been addressed very directly and very strongly. And the number of cases since the year 2000 has pretty much flatlined. There are hardly any cases. I think there are less than 10 new cases since then. But there are still earlier cases that come up. And that's, I'll bet that was what happened with the, the one uh, priest in your parish who was put up on sex abuse uh, charge. It was a, something that happened earlier. Um, often, and frankly, uh, there'll still be some coming up because victims find it difficult to deal with this until sometimes 20, 25 years after it happens. It's just so difficult for many of them. It, it's hard for an adolescent to cope with this horrible experience. And so that's why there still are cases that show up. So I'm specifically addressing the issue of child sex abuse. That has de decreased. However, and I did not mean in any way to say that therefore all sexual issues by clergy are gone. They're not. And you're, you're, you're aware that you've got, it sounds like you have two problems. Um, priests having difficulty with the bishop, and that's you know more on the level of administration and the bishop's personal care for the priests. That's one thing. And secondly, you also have priests who will have affairs with adults. You know, that is something that uh, is still going on, tragically. You know, that, 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 that's just because it's consenting adults doesn't give any excuse any more than it's an excuse for two consenting adults to commit adultery or fornication. That, you know, sexual immorality remains sexual immorality. And I would, you know, uh, again, highlight we live in a sexually gluttonous society where the role of sexual misconduct as adultery, 56% of adults admit to committing adultery. That's extraordinarily high to me and tragically high for the various people involved. And this is, it, it's wrong. And priests are doing the equivalent of adultery because uh, they're, they're having, uh, they have a, a promise or a vow to be celibate and chaste. And if they break it, they're breaking a vow made before God and the church. And part of our mentality as priests is we need to love the church as our own bride. And sexual relations that are uh, for, for with anybody, an adult, uh, included, uh, is a very sinful situation. And all of the clergy have to 
keep addressing the issue of how do I remain chaste. That includes not giving oneself permission for use of pornography or self-abuse or any other such thing. These kind of sins are not permissible and that we are called to a chastity. St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of my order, said that we should have the chastity of the angels. Uh, you know, that's the, the, the goal, is to have a, a complete chastity. And you, to, it's important for us priests to confess our sins frequently. And if that includes sexual temptation and or giving into temptation, that needs to be brought to confession regularly so that you not only confess the sin, but you also are getting the graces of confession to help avoid the sin. Seeking other ways of prayer to protect oneself against the temptation. This has to be ongoing. It cannot stop just because, well, I'm not abusing kids. No, that's not enough. It has to be, you know, it's bad to even think that, well, you know, it's not so bad if I'm not abusing minors. No, it's wrong in any way, just as it's wrong for any married man to have relations outside of his marriage or any unmarried person to have relations that are not within marriage. This is what we're called to, and this is what our Lord asks of us. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. We have more emails and questions, so please stay with us. First of all, I'd like to ask you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with my very good friend, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, about giving a Catholic response to racism and stereotypes about races and ethnic groups so that we can work together to build a civilization of love. And it's this is going to be a very an increasingly important discussion as we see terrible, terrible elements coming uh, uh, up of anti-Semitism. Uh, this, this is unconscionable, unconscionable what's going on. Uh, and, you know, this is something that we have to make sure that we are not anti-Muslim or anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. Actually... <laughs> Arabs are, are Semites too, um, as, as are Jewish people. But, you know, opposing them from prejudice and stereotypes is immoral. And harming Muslims in this country or harming Jews or any other group because of their identity uh, or for any, any innocent person, 
This is a grievous sin, a mortal sin against their person. And, you know, we have to stand up for the dignity of everybody. So let's make sure we do that. Let me just take a look at another email. Um, Dear Father Mitch, when Jesus at the Last Supper gave his body and blood to the apostles to eat and drink, did Judas receive Holy Communion? If so, had Judas committed a mortal sin yet? Since Catholics not in a state of grace should be refused Holy Communion, I wonder why Jesus allowed Judas to receive. I used to think Judas left to betray Jesus before the sharing of his body and blood. Uh, Today, as on past shows, I heard you say that all 12 apostles received their Holy Communion from Jesus on Holy Thursday. So did did Judas not commit a mortal sin yet? It was said in earlier scriptures that Judas was a thief. Please explain. Patricia from New Jersey. I'm afraid that he he did receive. We see that in Luke 22, go back to the text, you'll see that Jesus instituted the Eucharist and gave the uh, body and blood of Christ to the 12 apostles. And then immediately after that, he says, one of you is about to betray me. And Judas then says, is it I, Lord? So our Lord knew that Judas was going to betray him. And again, as I said in past shows, he let Judas dip in his dish as a sign of friendship. This was a sign of friendship, but uh, Judas still remained within his sin. So he received that, uh, the, the Eucharist, and he was commissioned to do this in remembrance of me. That was our Lord's statement of ordination. Judas did that and then went out to complete the betrayal. The the mortal sin of taking the 30 pieces of silver in order to betray Jesus had already been done. And yet our Lord gave him communion. So this is the the situation that we have. And this... um, you know, we, we have, I'm sure, uh, you know, a number of people who are favoring abortion and other mortal sins, adultery, fornication, all kinds of sins that receive communion unworthily. They need to remember, you know, that uh, they could do that as Judas did in the sense that they are able to, but they'll have to deal with that and uh, eventually seek forgiveness not only for the sin, but for receiving communion unworthily. Let us now go to our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Maryland. Good to have you here. Welcome. And your question or comment? Uh, in our parish, we often had a, uh, a visiting priest preach, and I very much was in love with the sermons and talking with them after Mass. Mm-hmm. And uh, later it was discovered that some very improper material were found on his laptop or computer, yes. and I was very distressed to, to hear about this because yes. the material wasn't appropriate to a Catholic priest. And, and I would add, it's probably not appropriate to any person. You know, this is something we have to distinguish. The Supreme Court has defended the right to have pornography, but it is not right to have pornography. It is immoral and gravely sinful. 
uh, and people often do grave sins uh, when they're looking at porn. And that's, again, it's that disjuncture between being able to preach the gospel but not be able to deal with this other aspect of life. Um, and I think to understand that none of us should put ourselves into compartments. I've got my sex compartment over here and my family compartment over here or my priesthood compartment over here and I don't integrate them. Moral maturity calls us to integrate all of our life in Christ. And so what I preach and how I live privately has to pull together and, you know, be integrated. And that's, that is the process of maturing. That's what we're calling all of us to do. And, you know, priests, no less than anybody else. I have another question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Uh, I live in Spokane, Washington, but I'm from Southern California. Okay, well, Spokane, Washington, I've been there. That's made a beautiful choice. Father, my question is, for those who have fallen away from the church, what dialogue would you recommend we have with them to bring them back to the faith? Yeah, I, great question. Um, there, are, there are a lot of people who feel that anger. And you, none of us can negate their outrage and anger at this because they are angry at outrageous behavior, gravely immoral behavior. And, you know, um, that had terrible impact on the lives of the victims. You know, there's just no way around that. I think owning that is the start. And secondly, I think, you know, this is why I wrote this book. For us to contemplate what Christ went through in his suffering, uh, to contemplate how he was terribly uh, beaten and abused in his passion. And the, the powerlessness that Peter and John, who were watching these trials, at least John was, uh, Peter ran away. And to, that's one of the ways I would do it. I, I would ask them, take a look at the Gospel of John with these trials that we're dealing with, where the young Saint John is there, and Peter comes as well. And I would enter into those passages trying to see the way John was thinking. Imagine if you were St. John watching our Lord. And if you were St. Peter being there with our Lord when you're being questioned about knowing him. And to take a look at that and say, do I want to identify with St. John who stayed with Jesus all the way to the cross and ended up being the first one, the first of the apostles anyway, 
to come to the empty tomb? Or do I want to be Peter who denied Jesus and left? You know, this is a way for us to understand our own attitudes. And that's not about saying that we're in any way going to try and justify the bad behavior that was done. That is not on the table. There's no justification of the bad behavior by anybody, including ourselves. And the final question I would ask is this. Satan won a victory by getting Judas to betray Jesus with a kiss. And he won a victory by getting these priests to betray Christ in abusing these people, these children. Do I want to give him yet another victory by turning away from Jesus and the means of grace? That way he gets a two-for-one sale on sin. And I don't want to give him that victory. That's why I stay, and that's why I want to be part of what our Lord would do to reform the church. Well, with that, we'll have to end because we're out of time. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can bring you this program and all of our other programs only because this show is brought to you by you. Please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you.